It's really a pleasure to be here today, not only because I've been here before for several times, but also because you are celebrating the 20th anniversary of this Congress of this organization, and also because you are also celebrating the 20th anniversary of the discovery of one of the syndromes that I will discuss with you. So, to begin with, I have no conflicts of interest to declare, and just an overview about the statistics of gastric cancer. As you know, it's the fifth most common cancer type worldwide, and what we are interested today, one to three percent of gastric cancers, they are hereditary, and uh, they cause uh, the diseases that can be lethal. And we know that gastric cancer, when diagnosed at an advanced stage, the prognosis is extremely poor, and the survival is something like 4% at five years. So in the setting of hereditary syndromes, really, there is a lot of things that we can do well in advance before advanced cancer is developed. When you talk about gastric cancer in hereditary syndromes, you should be aware that the stomach can be involved in the setting of other syndromes that affect mainly other organs in the digestive tract. This is a list of the most frequent. For those of you who may be interested, we recently published a review paper on the involvement of the stomach in these different conditions. And here at this stage, I want to highlight juvenile polyposis because patients with mutations in SMAD4 gene, they have the risk of developing lesions in the stomach and gastric cancer. But if you now move to the, what we are concentrating today, we are talking about the situations, familial hereditary, in which the stomach itself is the major target. So I will talk about hereditary diffuse gastric cancer gastric adenocarcinoma and proximal polyposis of the stomach and familial intestinal gastric cancer. I'll begin by hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. The acronym is HDGC, and you know that the gene was identified uh, as the cause of this syndrome 20 years ago, and this gene is CDH1 and encodes for a protein which is a member of the adhesion uh, addition of the cells and the encodes for ecadrine. So this was identified, as I said, in 1998 by the group of Perry Guilford by the study of three kindred in New Zealand. These kindred were constituted of many family members, many generations, and it was possible to identify those who were affected by the disease and come up for linkage analysis, trying to identify in those affected members what the genetic cause of disease might be. By that time, Perry Guilford was extremely intelligent because before sinking in the search of the gene, he wanted to be sure about the histology of the cancers, and these cancers were diffuse time. And we knew by that time that diffuse gastric cancer in the sporadic setting was related to changes in ecadrine gene. That's what we have done in the carriers, putative carriers of the disease. They searched for germline mutations in this gene, and they managed to show the relationship and the linkage between the phenotype and the genotype. So they came to the identification of hereditary diffuse gastric cancer, and this was 20 years ago precisely. The gene is localized in chromosome 16, and now there is a huge amount of information about this. 
In the meantime, and based on the information and new data collected about the syndrome, the last edition of WHO classification of tumors of the digestive system, and this was the fourth edition in 2010, and can pass for the first time a chapter on this syndrome. And in this chapter, it was summarized not only the model of development of gastric cancer in this setting, but also the macroscopic features and the microscopic features of this disease, which are really very nice. We had the opportunity to review in this chapter genetic susceptibility, molecular pathology, the clinical features, and pathology itself. And that's what I'm going to summarize for you with the updates that in the meantime were achieved. So as I said, hereditary diffuse gastric cancer is mainly, I emphasize mainly, caused by germline mutations in CDH1 gene. The mutations, they are distributed along the whole lengths of the gene. Most of them, they are truncating mutations, but they are also missense mutations. This is very relevant because of the practical consequences for the man management of the patients. Because 80% of the cases, they are caused by truncating pathogenic mutations. So the recommendations are very clear. They are not so clear for the about 20% of the cases in which the mutations are missense and you don't know well the functional impact in that specific condition. So the summary of what happened since the identification until today, 20 years in the between. At the beginning, it was identified that about 25% of the families fulfilling the criteria the, the genetic cause germline mutations were identified. Since then, there was screening of CDH1 mutations, and this was adopted all, all over the world. And it increased the percentage of cases that were related or caused by CDH1 germline mutations. But in the meantime, it was also possible to identify large deletions as a cause. And there was this huge amount of cases in which you clinicians, you have the full criteria and you do not know what the gene is and we are not able to tell you what the gene is. So it means this is a high proportion. It means that in the meantime there were many studies trying to address this issue and look how many genes have been identified, many of them in isolating single families. So it becomes very difficult to translate these individual findings to clinical application. And from this evidence, what you know is that there is a new gene that really plays an important role. This is CTNNA1 encoding for alpha-catenin, and also some interest on MAP3K6, though the evidence is not so strong. So, but anyway, these are the most promising alternative candidates as a genetic cause of hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. So putting together the search of deletions and the identification of new genes, this is the picture currently. We know that about 36% of the families, they are, the, the disease is caused by CDH1 mutations. We still have a huge amount, more than half of the case, we do not know the genetic cause. There are other mutations in about 6% of the cases, and you should always search 
for large lesions in the case in the candidate families. And now the consolidation about the role of CTN and A1 gene is done. What is not done yet is the validation of the clinical guidelines for clinical application. So if you come to this summary table in one of the papers I was talking about, we know now that hereditary diffuse calcium cancer can be mainly caused by CDH1 and the percentage of cases by the gene encoding for alpha-catenin, both situations, they are autosomal dominant. And as you know, the risk for calcium cancer in the cases related to CDH1 is very high. We don't know the magnitude of the risk for the cases caused by this alpha-catenin. In the first condition, we have also the risk for lobular cancer in the breast, and this is not identified so far for the cases related to mutations in the gene for alpha-catenin. So these have imp clinical implications, and we should take that in consideration. If you now move to molecular pathology of the gassy cancer related CDH1, we know that in tissues there is loss of expression of ecadrine or abnormal expression. It's not always loss, and you should be aware of that because you can still have expression, for instance, when, when you have missense mutations. So it means that the second allele of this uh, gene is inactivated, and this leads to loss of expression. The, the question is, what is the mechanism leading to inactivation, somatic inactivation of the second allele? And the most frequent mechanism is promoter methylation, we thought a couple of years ago. But in the meantime, we have performed a thorough study of several gastrectomies, and in each the study of different foci of this hereditary diffuse gassy cancer, we came to the demonstration that it is not only promoter methylation, but because you can have also loss of heterozygosity, you can have the two mechanisms together, and you can have somatic mutations. So the mechanism that leads to the total inactivation of CDH1 gene is more complex than what we thought at the beginning. This is true for the lesions in the stomach and also for the metastasis in the lymph nodes. If you look now to pathologies, beautiful pathologies, the bona fide cases, this is an example of signet ring cells that in Lorentz classification corresponds to diffuse calcium cancer in which you have the normal glands and believe it or not, these are the cells that can, if transformed to an aggressive pattern of the disease, to a lethal disease. This is a summary of what we usually do in routine. We get a section with diffuse calcium cancer, usually in the early stages, localized in the superficial part of the mucosa. I guess you can understand how difficult this can be, see, be for the identification in a fast screening, but you can use past staining that highlights this poorly cohesive cells. It's very nice because they are very small at the next zone and they enlarge to the surface of the mucosa. But even so, there is no irregularity of the mucosa itself, and that's why the gastroenterologists are unable to detect these foci unless in very special conditions. Usually perform ecadrine to show that there is abnormal expression, but as I said, this is helpful but not determinant. 
And when we come to the study of prophylactic discectomies, we had the opportunity to do that in our institution and also to review from literature something like 160. I hope this paper to be published very soon in histopathology. We have seen that in these prophylactic discectomies, we find a large number of intermucosal early lesions of diffuse calcium cancer, but also precursor intraepithelial lesions, such as this one, partial spread, or in situ carcinoma. These lesions are beautiful. They are extremely difficult to identify. Here you can see it's very easy, but this is a single gland-based change. At low power, you can miss it. You need expertise. And I'm highlighting this because if you do not have the expertise there in your pathology department, and this is not a defect, it's something that you get because you have the experience, yes or no, but in doubt, I will strongly recommend to send in consultation. This is one case I received in consultation that clearly is an in-situ carcinoma. Look at the signet ring cell substituting the lining of the gland, and here this is intermucosal carcinoma, and the pathologist was sent in consultation. He was afraid something was wrong, but he was not able to make the diagnosis. That was clear-cut only because some centers, they have a huge experience in this field. And another issue that is very relevant also for you clinicians who have to deal with these situations, and I'm telling you the story very recent in our hospital, in which we have seen a patient at the age of 18 years when he presented at the hospital, he had advanced calcium cancer and died in two months. The tumor in this patient was not signet ring, it was very pleomorphic. What I'm highlighting is that in the setting of hereditary diffuse calcium cancer, you can have a proportion of cases in which the phenotype is very aggressive. In our mind, this phenotype is the one that tells you that we'll have progression and the disease can progress rapidly and kill the patients. In this family, a young sister at the age of 15, she was in panic as well, the parents, and they asked for the gastrectomy, prophylactic gastrectomy to be performed in this girl. We had to ask for the permission of the ethics committee, and because of the stress in the family, with the surgeons who were allowed to perform the gastrectomy, and at this age of 15, this is published already, if you want to look at this case, the, at this stage, the girl had already 14 distinct foci. So I'm talking about the family with the hereditary diffuse gas camera. It's the same, the same mutation, different morphology, different phenotypes. We do not know why but it's our responsibility to make an effort to identify the aggressive phenotypes. And that is what we are trying to do, and we are trying to do by the search of markers such as proliferative markers and P53. And we are convinced currently, you can find this in the literature also, that the expression of proliferation and P53 in the setting of hereditary diffuse calcium cancer should be taken as a risk for the development of aggressive disease. That's why we call this indolent phenotype. That's why we call that aggressive phenotype. We have no idea in some patients, the same family, the tiny indolent phenotype remain for long without making any harm. In the same family, some of the foci will develop in aggressive disease. So this is very challenging. So from the clinical standpoint, there is much to be said, no time for that. Just to highlight the recommendation currently, without any doubt, is prophylactic gastrectomy or risk-reducing gastrectomy, if you prefer, 
If the patient denies or conditions are not gathered for that, the patient can be submitted to intensive screening by endoscopy annually, something that should take half an hour with at least 30 samples got during the, the endoscopy for histological examination. The profile of the distribution of the tiny foci in the prophylactic astrectomies is very different. This is North America and Europe, and this is the pattern that we have observed in Portugal and in the review we performed, slightly different from New Zealand, in which the distribution is close to the transition of the body and the antrum. And by the way, for the first time next year, the International Gastric Cancer Linkage Consortium we'll have the first official meeting in New Zealand, 20 years after the identification of the syndrome. But you clinicians, what you want to know is what am I going to do with my specific patient and family? And you have the guidelines, and the guidelines are published, and I want to highlight there are established criteria, and there are some other criteria that should be taken in consideration and can support. It makes no sense to go through in detail. I want to highlight the management of these patients in this syndrome as in other others should be in the frame of multidisciplinarity approach. But if you come to a more detailed or simplified, the identification of the patients and the families should also be searched for the presence of cleft lip that can appear and lobular breast cancer. Genet testing currently should be addressed not only to CTH1 but also CTNNA1 and the integration should be integrated in the progress of risk assessment. So it, for the mutations carriers, it should be searched not only the diffuse gastric cancer and recommended the risk reduction gastrectomy. It's controversial to advise and lost the specific conditions, the surveillance program only. And of course, for the breast, the patients, the women should be submitted to bilateral surveillance from the age of 30 and prophylactic mastectomy is still controversial. Next year, I think, we'll get to new guidelines more updated. If you now move, you will now move to the GAP syndrome. This, is, this was identified much more recent. This was 2012. This is a summary of what was published in gut by that time. By that time, we had no idea what the genetic cause was. We now know that the genetic cause is very well identified. I hope you can see well the pictures. The picture here is that you have a profuse proximal gastric polyposis, completely different from hereditary diffuse gastric cancer. Look at the polyps, they can be hundreds. They are beautiful, but very difficult to just identify if cancer will develop in which and why. Some of them are more proeminent. Those should be targeted for the biopsies. And this is a surgical specimen just to show clearly that these polyps, they affect the stomach and the fundus and they spare the antrum and the small curvature. The lesions at the microscope, they are very nice because we have this carting of polyps. They are roundish. They have the features of fundic gland polyps. This is very important, as I'll try to show. And what is a feature also of this syndrome is the presence of dysplasia in these fundic gland polyps. As you know, this is quite a rare event in the somatic setting, in the sporadic setting. So what you should be aware also is that the cases were identified in Australia, the first families, and also in Japan, but now the cases begin to be reported from Europe. And the question here is to be aware 
and to be aware and to search for the tools to identify. This was the first European family, and this was described in Czech Republic, and this was very recently, in 2016. But here we have already, from 2017, another family in Austria. We have a putative family in our institute, and I'm afraid that several of you would also consider the possibility of this diagnosis. So we should be aware. So what would I like to highlight from this? Uh, in GAP syndrome, the polyps are restricted to the body and the antrum. These are from the gland polyps with dysplasia. And you know that a mutation occurs in the promoter region of APC gene, that is the gene that causes familial adenomatosis of the colon. So this is very relevant. Why? Because what I'm talking about now is that we have gastric polyposis syndrome. The one of these is GAPS, in which you know the mutation, the localization, pattern of inheritance, and we know the phenotype by histology. But look at the attenuate familial adenomatous polyposis, also caused by APC, also the autosomal dominant pattern of inheritance, and also with fundicland polyps. So you can get at a certain time point puzzled, what am I looking at? So what should I do? I should go for genetic testing. I should search specifically the mutations in this specific part. And, and my understanding of the role of this gene in this polyposis syndrome in the stomach gaps and FAP is the following. If we have the mutations in the hot spot, you have severe FAP. And the colon is the main target, right? You have more than 100 polyps, we have the features, extra colonic lesions, so on and so forth. If the mutations occur not in this hot spot, but if they occur, can I get rid of this? Well, well. Can I get rid of this? Mm -hmm. Okay, but uh, this would be crucial. Is anywhere in there? Okay, very good. So, but if the mutation occurs not here in the, in the hot spot, but in the extremities, as you know, what you get here is attenuated FAP. And not only the colon, but also the stomach, they are targets. You have adenomatous polyps in the colon and you have fundic polyps in the stomach. But if you have the mutation in the promoter region in this 1B localization, what you have is gaps, and the phenotype is mostly concentrated and exclusive of the stomach. So we have one gene, three phenotypes, and it is our responsibility to be aware of that because there are consequences for the patients. And so what I've been talking about is about integrated molecular pathology. In week two, we have molecular pathology, we have genomics, epigenomics, and we have the clinical phenotype. And we think we are here today celebrating the 20th anniversary because you want to put everything together for a better understanding, effort translation to clinics. And thank you so much for your attention.